Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cagliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I am great. Thank you very much. Great to see you. Sorry, it's been a couple of weeks we, since we were able we, to Yeah, we've record. had some things come up, uh, but we are now, now back back at it uh, with, with the podcast. Right. Uh, we've had a, a series of tragic news stories. Uh, a week ago, a, a shooter in Buffalo, New York, uh, entered a African-American grocery store and killed... 10 people, citing as one of his motivations, the Great Replacement. This is an idea that has gained some uh, currency, not only among uh, uh, radical white supremacists, but even among uh, mainstream Americans. A a recent poll suggests that 20% of Americans believe in some version of the Great Replacement. We wanted to, to talk about what the Great Replacement is as a, as a, as a racist theory, uh, but also try to put it into some kind of context, because I think there's a modern iteration of this, but there's also, I think, there are historical, lots of historical precedents for it. Uh, so should we talk about sort of the modern iteration first, Frank? Yeah, I mean, maybe we need to first define what it is yeah. uh, as it's currently used. And so, so and I think there's a couple different versions that are used right now. There are different versions. Um, so, so the... the um, its modern iteration really probably goes back to 2011 and a French book called The Great Replacement, written by a man named Renaud Camus. And uh, Camus made the argument in, in the French context that that um, white French people were in danger of being replaced mm. by uh, immigrants and the descendants of immigrants from Africa and the Middle East, particularly Islamic um, immigrants to France, and that this poses a fundamental threat to French culture. Now this, as, as we're going to show, this is, a, this is a set of beliefs that has long antecedents. And I mean, this, uh, Camus did not come up with this out of uh, thin air in 2011, but this, this view has gained currency on both sides of the Atlantic and beyond, mm. uh, as we saw and in the Pacific, yeah. yeah, in the Christchurch shootings in, in 2019 um, uh, in, in New Zealand. But um, in, in its U.S. iteration in the past decade, uh, there's, there's a sort of sanitized version, which is often peddled by the likes of Tucker Carlson. And the New York Times had a big feature on Carlson. We considered doing an episode mm-hmm. about about a month ago in which uh, they, uh, exa- they, they watched hundreds of episodes of Tucker Carlson's program on, on Fox News. And, and one of the things they cited was the number of times that Carlson yeah, I think examined this. In, in the past five years, he's had... 400 instances where he's talking about the great replacement in some variety. Right. And so the, the way the current theory works, just to give a shorthand summary, so we're, we're working for the same page, is there's a widespread belief that as a result of demographic change, white people, sometimes called um, traditional Americans, or you know, there are different kind of code words and not so coded words, but basically white Americans of European descent will be replaced by non-white Americans or non-white immigrants, mm. non-Americans, even even more threateningly. And that this is not a kind of accident of, of demography, but this is a result of a conspiracy that either that elites of some kind often identified as Jews, but not always, that some sort of shadowy elites are promoting this demographic change in order to fundamentally change American society, either to acquire political power or economic power, and to displace 
traditional white Americans. So the po the power and place of traditionally uh, that that uh, white Americans have traditionally had in U.S. society. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, of it, David? so I think you know, and, and the Tucker Carlson's of the world, the way they defend it, they say, "Look, we're not talking about race; we're talking about politics, and we're talking about the ways in which he argues that that Democrats." He says are trying to get a new set of voters to vote for them, uh, and so it's about manipul. They say it's not. You know, they say they're not being racist when they talk about the Great Replacement. They're talking about a political shift that's being engineered by shadowy elites. Yeah. Uh, so Elise Stefanik, for example, the the congressperson from New York, who is like uh, the third ranking Republican. In, yes. In Congress. And in fact, depending on what happens to Kevin McCarthy, I mean, Elise yeah. Stefanik could reasonably become Speaker of the House um, in, the, in the foreseeable future. Stefanik's an interesting character because she was originally an anti-Trump, pretty mm. centrist Republican, but she's since moved over, moved to the right uh, and become a pretty ardent Trumpist. And she had an advertisement in her last um, campaign that appeared on Facebook that talked about Democrats promoting uh, immigration in order to create a permanent majority. Now, she... And her supporters say, no, no, this isn't about race at all. This is just about what the Democrats are doing in order to manipulate and essentially game the system. Mm. Um, and so Carlson and Stefanik and these types walk right up to the line of racism. Mm. <laughs> but they don't all, well, Carlson does step over the line. Stefanik doesn't, didn't quite go over the line. But they're using coded language. But then there are people well beyond that line. Like Steve King. Yeah, who are saying, no, this is explicitly, this is exactly what's happened. So what does Steve King Well, Steve King is, is a you know, Republican from, from Iowa who has explicitly said, like, look, this is a threat to, to white America, that, that, that the immigration system is going to, uh, that, that the, any form of open immigration is going to, to destroy the character of the country. And you find actually lots of people saying things sort of between the sort of Steve King version of it, which is pretty explicitly white supremacist, um, and the, the Stefanik Tucker Carlson position. Uh, like Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor of Texas, you know, said in 18 years, if every one of them has two or three children, you're talking about millions and millions and millions of new voters. This is trying to take over our country without firing a shot. So they talk about it in, in terms of the language of invasion. They talk about it in the language of coups. Uh, Newt Gingrich said something very similar last year. He said, uh, Newt Gingrich, of course, the, the former Speaker of the House, um, I think it is hard for most of us to accept that it is anti, the anti-American left that would love to drown traditional classic Americans. Traditional classic, I mean, he means it's white. Like classic. Yes, exactly. <laughs> to try to drown traditional classic Americans with as many people as they can who know nothing of American history, nothing of American tradition, nothing of the rule of law, and I think... When you go and look at the radical left, this is their ideal model, is to get rid of the rest of us, because we believe in George Washington and we believe in the Constitution. So what's interesting about this, David, I think, is there is demographic change happening in the United States. It's quite profound. Hmm. Within the next couple of decades, the United States will be a majority-minority country in the sense that whites will be the largest minority in the country. Yeah, I think that the, the data says mm, 2041, 2046. Right. So sometime in the next couple of decades, that will happen. Uh, what is interesting about The Great Replacement is, uh, or, uh, is that it ascribes this 
to the actions of a, of a kind of conspiracy, of a cabal, whether it's Democrats or Jews or Jewish Democrats, uh, you know, that, that are actively making this happen rather than saying, look, demographic change happens. We've known about this for decades. Mm. Uh, this trend has been ongoing for, for yeah. a long, well, since the 1960s as we're going to see mm. um, you know it, 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 that's just the way history goes it, it's one of the interesting things about this to me is although it's a transatlantic and, fr- and frankly global movement mm. at least um, in in, um, in predominantly white societies around the world uh, the, this anxiety it's actually happening in the United States in the sense that, that demographic change is happening there's demographic change in Western Europe, but it's nothing like the kind of demographic change we're seeing in the United States where whites will, will become the largest minority in the country. Uh, that's not happening in France. No, to be even sure. Even if France's demography is, is dramatically changing. So, so they're taking this... They're using the same ideas and making the same arguments, but the context is very, very different. And I think partially this helps explain Trumpism and, the, and some of the politics we've seen uh, within the United States because there's a... And, and, and it explains Tucker Carlson's ratings because, oh, sure. you know, he's, he's tapping into, whether it's Trump or Tucker Carlson, they're tapping into an anxiety that some white Americans feel, not all, but some white Americans mm. feel about the prospect of this demographic change. But crucially, they're saying somebody's responsible for it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, there's an individual, there is a group of individuals who are responsible for this. And uh, that's the that's the kind of crucial yeah. difference. Uh, I, think. No, I, think, I think you're right. I mean, obviously, the, you know, Trump's, speech that he gave after he came down the escalator you know he talks about mexico not sending their best and in terms of like immigration is not a product of individual choices of, of people choosing to to relocate uh, and create new lives for themselves but about people being sent and who's getting to choose who's coming to it can, can i read you a quote from another politician you gave uh, us newt gingrich yes i'd like to give you another one and i'm, I'm not going to name the individual okay so it's going to be a, a quiz great it, it is a quiz in short Unless the stream of this importation could be turned, talking about immigration, they will soon outnumber us. All the advantages that we have will not, in my opinion, be able to preserve our language, and even our government will become precarious. Discuss. If you had to date that quote and guess who who the author was, who, who, who do you think? I have a guess, but that's only because we have a conversation before the show. Uh, but uh, I mean, it sounds like that could actually fit in a number of different contexts. Who is it, Frank? It's everybody's favorite cuddly founding father, Benjamin Franklin, writing in 1753 about German immigration to Pennsylvania. And this uh, appeared in a very long letter that Franklin wrote to a man named Peter Collinson in May of 1753, and in the letter, he ruminates at great length, and it's a very interesting letter, about um, migration generally, but also about race and ideas of race, uh, and whether Protestants make better workers than Catholics and things like this. It's a very interesting and disturbing letter in all kinds of ways. But he goes on at some length about the, the arrival of large numbers of Germans and large numbers of Germans uh, did migrate to Pennsylvania in the middle of the of the 18th century, and his worry is that they are changing the very nature of, or in threatening to change the very nature of Pennsylvania because they don't learn English, they don't go to our churches, they don't go to our schools, they're not being, they don't assimilate, they keep to themselves, and once they start voting, they're going to threaten our politics. 
it's very, very similar. Now, the context is different. Later in the letter, Franklin says, I don't mean to say that Germans aren't good immigrants, because actually some of them are. We just need to spread them out around the colonies. So, so, so um, a little bit more. It's, it's the concentration that's the issue. But, but I guess my point, and this is a letter that, that often gets quoted, um, that historians often quote, um, this discourse has been with us in American politics for a very, very, and American culture for a very, very long time. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the attention to demography as a discipline, I mean, Franklin obviously also has this famous essay where he writes about population growth in the United States and how it's like, what was it, doubling every generation or something? Yeah, he wrote that two years He's later. Like, yeah. So, uh, you know, this idea that, that the, the composition of the American people, however you want to define the American people, is going to change over time, both in terms of its overall numbers, but also in terms of its composition. I think that's an idea that people have been both interested in and anxious about uh, from the very, very beginning. And, and what, what will happen to America if, if the, that mix of people changes? Um, I think that that's an anxiety that's, that's um, quite profound. That's right. And, and I think what we see from Franklin is an early articulation of that, not the only one and certainly not the last one. Um, but but it's, he also talks about non-Anglophone migrants to Pennsylvania being swarthy. And so there's a real racial component to this. Um, yeah, and uh, he, I mean, he describes Swedes and Germans as swarthy, which is a slightly interesting term. <laughs> yes, that, that's not the first term that comes to uh, mind. But, but you know, so he draws a contrast in, in kind of quasi-racial terms uh, to distinguish between and among different groups of, of Europeans in this mm. context. Um, but but I, 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 as we as I was thinking about this episode, I, I returned to that letter. As I said, it's quite a famous letter. Um, uh, that's often cited by 18th century historians, but uh, and it, it's a really it's a it's very telling. It, but his rhetoric is not that far off what Newt Gingrich was saying. In in the quote, you to be sure, yeah, 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 right, yeah. And and, it, and, it, and it's it's not that far off what um, uh, you know Renaud Camus is saying in the Great Replacement, or Tucker Carlson says. You know, and it's oh, you know, they're they're not like us and they're not going to assimilate and, and their very presence but because their numbers are so great is are fundamentally changes and challenges our society to be sure right and how, what about what about your man jefferson we can't have an episode without jefferson showing up does <laughs> he thinking... does, does he have thoughts about demography and 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 the the changing nature of uh, the american people he does. I mean, interestingly, at one point he actually says we need more German immigrants because German immigrants, indentured German laborers might be the solution to our labor problem if we if we uh, eliminate slavery. Um, so the, the, he has a slightly different take on Germans. Uh, I've thought about Jefferson in this regard. He briefly flirted when he was, you know, so Jefferson's concerned about slavery, but has difficulty reconciling his concern about slavery with both his uh, dependence on slavery uh, and enslaved labor, but also his racism. And so at one point, he flirts with this idea called diffusion, where he says that the real solution to slavery in the United States and the race problem that's attendant to slavery is that the enslaved population, the black population, should be diffused. It should be spread across the country. Because if you don't get these concentrations of people of African descent, that's good. That that'll be a good thing. 
and that this is the way to do it. And, he, and, and so he's got some ideas about demography. He doesn't really pursue this in great detail. And, I, you know, it's one of, we have a tendency, Jefferson writes a lot, and, and he's a little bit of a, a prisoner of his own, um, the, the, his own archival impulse. He saved everything he wrote, or most things he wrote. And so even his, thoughts yeah, even his stray thoughts have assumed perhaps greater significance than they should in, in the study of Jefferson. But this notion of diffusion... I think reflects an anxiety about the concentration of people who aren't like us. So in that sense, I think there is a kind of commonality between Jefferson's thinking and what we see from from Franklin. This is not unusual in that period or beyond. I mean, David, in your sanctuary, yeah, you know, we we see we see you know the rise of scientific racism and everything. To be else. sure, so, right? And, and there's a couple of different manifestations of it uh, in the 19th century uh, of this sort of ang this anxiety and and the what goes along with it in terms of, of violence. Because uh, I think you know the, the the rhetoric is one thing, but the actions are another. And obviously, the great example of this um, in the the mid nineteenth century uh, is the Know Nothing or or the American Party, which was a anti immigrant party, largely targeting um, Catholics who they thought as being incompatible with American values, and uh, also on the West Coast. Uh, People of, of Asian or people Asian immigrants who they also saw as being incompatible with with democracy, and you know along with this sort of political position was a tremendous amount of violence targeted towards Catholic institutions uh, and individuals, and, and so there is a, a contemporary sort of relevance to this where where the rhetoric is one thing, but then there's people taking um, violent action uh, to this to the or further that political position. Um, the Know Nothing Party doesn't really have a, a, a great intellectual framework for it. They say they really don't think uh, Catholics are, are compatible with, with, with American uh, democracy. But there are a bunch of people in the, in, who are thinking very seriously in, in the mid-19th century um, about what the future will look like in terms of demography. And one of the more interesting ones um, is a doctor by the name of Horatio Storer. Are you familiar with him? I am not. Uh, okay, so he's one of the most prominent doctors in the country in uh, the mid, mid to late uh, 19th century. Uh, and he talks a lot about what the future of the United States will look like with current with what he saw in terms of, of demography. He asked the question, would the West be filled with our children? That is to say, in his mind, the, the children of, uh, of white Americans, uh, white Protestant Americans, or those of aliens. And so he has this sort of anxiety about it. He's, he was a, just for background, he was a graduate of Harvard Medical School. He actually came here to Edinburgh to study with uh, James Young Simpson, who was the father, I guess, of, of anesthesiology. But one of the problems that Storer saw was about who was having all the children. And he looked and he said, Protestant white women are not having as many children as immigrant women were, whether those were immigrant women. Of, uh, and and the, that to solve this, one of the things he said needs to stop was legal abortion. And he becomes actually the leading campaigner to make abortion illegal in the mid-19th century. And he's tying it to this idea about demographic replacement because he says, look, if we can get Protestant native-born white women to have more children, that will save the country. And he leads 
the American Medical Association to form a committee on criminal abortion. Um, and it's in response to Storer and other people like him in the Civil War era immediately thereafter that leads to many of the, the abortion law, the sort of form abortion laws that we think of that, that, that Roe versus Wade um, overturned uh, a century later. Yeah, and I would say this remains a theme in, in current Abortion discourse rate, around yeah. the Great Replacement. Yeah. So that um, one of the, in the research for this episode, and it really took me to some dark places, <laughs> or unpleasant places, yes. uh, I came across a quote from, I think it was a Danish uh, anti-immigrant um, uh, politician or political figure who was making the case that you the combination of gay rights and abortion yeah, sorry the three things together gay rights abortion and immigration were threatening European culture sure. because the but basically and you're finding European similar rhetoric, rhetoric in, in the United States yeah, right? aren't having enough children. Um, you know and and if you read the the anti-abortion literature from the late 19th century the number of times I mean, there's a lot of arguments that are made for why abortion should be made illegal, but one of the threads that runs through them is this sort of horror of that, 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 that demographic change is going to change the United States and that eliminating abortion would be one important step into maintaining Anglo-Saxon, uh, quote-unquote, you know, supremacy within the United States. Um, and so I think that's an interesting way in which these you know, various strands of political thought both are, are connected now but are connected uh, more than a century ago um, obviously you've got a bunch of, of anti-immigrant sentiment manifesting itself like the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 um, you know continuing hostility towards uh, various immigration immigrant groups in the 1880s and 1890s where increasingly more, more and more immigrants are coming from Eastern Europe and Southern Europe so lots of Italians and Russians and and Jewish communities are immigrating, and people are 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 many Anglo-Saxon Americans, quote unquote, are, are seeing this with some anxiety. What well, one thing that's interesting, David, about this is, so the early the early xenophobia, and we got this from Franklin. Mm. Um, we see it in in the early part of the nineteenth century, especially around the know nothings, is oriented towards uh, Catholic migrants, sure, but. Primarily, the two large groups that it's directed at in that period are still the Germans, but also the Irish. Mm. Yet you cast your mind forward, or we, we go forward to the end of the century, and those groups are, there's still some lingering prejudices against them. But now that the the fixation has moved and, and the uh, immigration patterns have changed, the, the concern is about, as you say, Southern and Eastern Europeans, people from the Mediterranean countries, Slavic yeah. people, Jews, etc. Now, the discourse has changed, and suddenly, and of course, people from East Asia, uh, the discourse has changed, and we get descendants of those earlier immigrant groups. To be sure. Are yeah. favoring, are themselves xenophobic, xenophobic restrictionists, and so the, one of the leaders of the so-called California Workingmen's Party in the 1870s, which is, a, is, is um, really exists to promote Chinese exclusion, is a man named Dennis Carney who's an Irish immigrant. Yeah. Um, and 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 so we and we see this phenomenon. I'm quite sure that Elise, I don't know Elise Stefanik's origins, but I'm pretty sure Stefanik sounds like an Eastern European yeah, name yeah. to me. Probably. I, I I don't know where her name. I comes don't think from. her ancestors were on Mayflower necessarily. No. No. Um, yet you know she uh, Tucker Carlson. Yes. It doesn't sound like an indigenous name to me. But anyway. 
<laughs> well, I mean, I think one of the things the the the, the, the discourses that's happening in in the nineteenth century is actually not only about sort of this idea about about replacement um, and 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 immigration, but also this idea about extinction becomes very right. prevalent. I mean, and part of it is they are looking at native populations and the decimate of native native populations. Some of them are looking at that with uh, approvingly and some of them are looking at that less approvingly um but they 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 see a possibility for saying actually maybe that could be us next and there's a you know a rhetoric about you know uh there's a survival of the fittest discussion that obviously there's the social darwinism element to this um and i think there's a, a great anxiety that that seems very similar uh, to to uh, to some of the sort of contemporary versions <laughs> Should we talk about sort of the, the apex of this in the early part of the 20th century? Sure. sure I mean, I, I suppose as, as an intellectual, so of course, between the 1890s and the early 19, or say 1920, let's say 1890 to 1920, mm. you do get this mass immigration into the United States, it, it, a million immigrants per year, possibly more, uh, coming from areas of the world that America, immigrants to the United States had not traditionally come from. So this is the great Ellis Island era. Right, of, right. right. Um, and there's a great deal of concern about this, and, and perhaps the, and this will lead to immigration restriction in the 1920s. There'll be a backlash against this. Um, one of, but there are a lot of people articulating early versions of what will become replacement theory during that period. Perhaps the most famous, I don't know, I don't know if you'd agree with this, David, is Madison Grant. He's one of two, I think. Yeah, yeah, who published a book called The Passing of the Great Race in 1916, but I think the Subtitles really important to it because it's it, subtitles are always revealing uh, the passing of the great race or the racial basis of European history, and so Grant is not hiding yeah. his light under a bushel here. He's you know he's he's upfront about this, and he basically is arguing that demographic change is threatening Europe and Europeans in America, and that this is a kind of historic fact, um, and and it, it, people need to be aware of this. Yeah, and and Grant was not a, a fringe figure. He no, was no, no. he was you know he was friends with Teddy Roosevelt. He was friends with Herbert Hoover, you know, and, and he was considered a sort of a legitimate. One of the things about Madison Grant and, and some of the other thinkers in this period is that they are cloaking their racist white supremacist rhetoric with uh, a kind of a scientific legitimacy, you know, and he's talking about the the demographic changes and birth rates and what have you. Um, but you know, one of the things that Madison Grant, and many of the other figures from that time period, are are advocating—they're advocating eugenics and a variety of kinds—but they're also advocating really substantial immigration restrictions to save. You know, he argues the only way America can be saved is if we put an absolute stop to immigration. That's right. I, but I think your point is a really important one, David. He's not a crank in that no. period. He's an important public intellectual. So there's the other. Big guy who's writing very similar kinds of things. A guy named uh, Lothrop Stoddard, who in 1920 writes a book called *The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy*. And in his mind, white world supremacy is a good thing. So just makes sure he's a historian. He's got a PhD from Harvard. He's also a Klansman and a, a member of the American Eugenics Society. And he argues that that. One of the downsides, he's writing this in 1920, one of the downsides of the end of the First World War is he said, well, we're not going to have as much colonialism anymore, and that's going to be bad for civilization. 
and he also called for massive immigration restriction. One of the ways in which both Madison Grant and Stoddard show up is in The Great Gatsby, because one of the things that Fitzgerald does in The Gatsby is he combines them. He has Tom Buchanan read a book uh, called The Rise of Colored Empires by, quote, this man Goddard. So they take Grant, Stoddard, right, one from right, the right. So everyone, everyone reading is right. like, and, and this is what Tom Buchanan says about the book. He says, the idea is if we don't look out for the white race, if we don't look out, the white race will be will be utterly submerged. It's all scientific stuff. It's been proven. So he gives a, you know, he, now that's not what Fitzgerald thinks. That's what he has a character say. But I think that sort of speaks to how prevalent those ideas were and how legitimized those ideas were um, in the 1920s. And, you know, they, they take political action. When uh, Coolidge uh, ran for president, he's, he campaigned, among other things, on a, a pledge to, quote, keep America American. And then to pass immigration restrictions, there's the, the 1924 National Origins Act, also called the Johnson-Reed Immigration Act, which put a substantial barrier to immigration from um, non-Northwestern European uh, immigrants. Uh, and Senator David Reed, one of the sponsors of the bill, it's named for, he said, we have closed the door just in time to prevent our Nordic population being overrun by lower races. You know, and so I think if you're speaking about the you know, pivotal moments in American immigration, I think 1924 really is one of them where there's a decided shift to say, look, we are no longer going to be a nation of immigrants. We are going to stop as much immigration as we possibly can. And they, they set quotas, and the quotas are based on on the 1890 census when you had far fewer of these um, Southern and Eastern European immigrants. And so it's a they set up quotas depending on which country you're coming from, and, and the quotas are pretty explicitly racist. Uh, towards um, you know people of British descent, uh, right? If they used the 1920 census, it would have been a very different picture, right? But they they say well, we want to go back. We want to make America look like we did 35 years ago, uh, when it were when there were far fewer Italians and far fewer Russians and far fewer Poles in in the in the United States. Um, And I think that that moment is a really important because the, the rhetoric about replacement, in some ways, kind of settles down for a bit in the in the nineteen thirties and forties, um, and some of this actually has, I think, to do with people recognizing that the arguments that that the replacementists were making sounded too similar to the kinds of arguments the Nazis were making. Um, well, so the, Nazi, the, the Nazis were actually really liked the American replacement people. So, like Madison Grant, yeah, Hitler admired Madison yeah, he Grant. Call, he called it the 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 passing of the white uh, the great race. He called, Hitler called that my Bible. Stoddard went to Nazi Germany, and he said uh, he wrote a book about it. And Stoddard said actually the Nazis aren't doing enough to to stop their, their eugenics program is too mild. He says, uh, so they get sort of cast aside in part because of the, their association with the Nazis. Well, there's that, and, and, and uh, so, so yes, the association with Nazism is a problem uh, for the replacement folks in, in the United States, but also because restrictions have been imposed, hmm. and it's in place for 40 years until the middle of the 1960s, as we'll see in a yeah. minute, they, but one of the other things we see during that period, of course, is the second and third generations of those 
those earlier the, those immigrants that seem so threatening from 1890 to 1920 are born and are assimilated and don't prove to be the danger to the United States that had been feared, um, in part because their numbers were continuously supplemented, uh, but also because of the economic uh, growth of the United States after the during and after the Second World War, there was less company, you know, the, the kind of economic competition for jobs and so on was, was less acute. The, the country was relatively prosperous. And so the, the dangers that were, that the folks like Madison Grant and Stoddard saw in, in the teens and 20s didn't seem to come to pass, which in part helps explain why there was a change in the laws in the 1960s. You want to talk about that? Yeah, so um, the system set up in 1924 lasts until 1965 when there's a new Immigration Act. And the Immigration Act of 1965 sort of does away with those the quotas and sort of establishes the framework, which has been obviously tweaked some since then, that, that the current immigration policy is, is based on, or it's not tied directly to national origin, but it's tied to other variables. Um, and the Immigration Act it, it was passed in part as a response to the civil rights movement, Civil rights advocates pointed out all the ways in which the the system established in the twenties was fundamentally racist in its in its premises. Um, there was also, a, I think, an understanding that that the system was preventing really good immigrants that people wanted from immigrating, and so they ditched it. But there was a concern when the new law was passed that maybe are, are we opening the doors to immigration in a way that would uh, re-energize this this anxiety, and. Ted Kennedy, uh, Senator Ted Kennedy, uh, actually responded to this in, in uh, after the bill was passed. He says, "He says, don't worry. The racial makeup of the United States is not going to be affected." He says, "quote Our cities will not be flooded with a million immigrants annually. The ethnic mix of the country will not be upset." Now, it turns out actually Ted Kennedy was wrong about that because the number of immigrants the United States has had since then has been about a million a year. And that it has changed the demographics of the country, uh, but I think his his him saying that sort of suggests that 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 you know that was part of the conversation about about what this bill would do, um, and I think one of the things that's happened since that immigration reform in, in 1965 is that's actually regenerated it's uh, reinvigorated this rhetoric about immigration and, and, and immigrants replacing Americans. So you start to see neo-Nazi groups in the 1970s talking about white genocide, which I think is a, you know, uh, basically the same idea as great replacement, but it's a bit, it's uh, obviously has a different valence attached to it. So in its contemporary iteration, mm. we see these ideas in wide circulation in various parts of the world. Mm. They have particular valence in the United States where there is the demographic change we, we've discussed. I mean, that demographic change is underway. Um, and it's manifested itself. There was the... Um, internationally, of course, there was the attack on the mosque. There were the attacks on the mosques in, in Christchurch in New Zealand in March of 2019 that left more than 50 people dead. Um, in August of the same year, there was an attack in, on a Walmart in, in El Paso, Texas, uh, that was targeting Latinos, and 23 people were killed there. And they, they, they also cited the, this sort of international, you know, the, yeah. Right. So, so, and then the, uh, the attack a couple of weeks ago 
yeah, at the supermarket, the top supermarket in a predominantly black neighborhood in Buffalo, um, in which ten people were killed, and that and the the murderer in that particular case produced a manifesto that was largely a recycling and a, he plagiarized the the Christchurch shooter mm. um, from a couple of years from several years before. So there's clearly a problem here. However, and I, I don't want to make light of the violent threat because I think that, that that violence is is a really important dimension to this and a consequence of this. Country's always been changing. Mm. Benjamin Franklin, you know, we've got Benjamin Franklin as evidence. These arguments have been remarkably consistent. And demographic change is demographic change. It's going to happen. It's not happening as a result of a small cabal of, of uh, leading Democrats or, or a global conspiracy at the UN, uh, etc. Does it matter? Does this rhetoric matter if we can... Uh, is our problem not the rhetoric and not, not the pretext for this, but the, the fact... But the violence and the violence in, the, in our politics and culture. And uh, we say this, uh, we're saying this in the aftermath of yet another school shooting yesterday in Texas, which we're not discussing on, in this episode. Um, you know, so, so is, is not <laughs> violence the problem, not whatever pretext uh, disturbed people happen to, to fixate on? Because the demographic change is happening. Yes. Nothing can be done to stop it. I, for one, am not well, bothered by. I think it's a good thing. I'm, I'm not. I suspect you probably feel the same yeah. way. I suspect lots of Americans are not bothered by it, but some are very bothered by it. But if they're bothered by it, well, tough. but by well, by I think there's there's two elements. There's multiple elements to this. One is I think for some people they think that actually there is something we can do to stop it. Right. I think there is for a certain variety of of conservative or Republican or or what have you, they think that this is an apocalyptic event that what's going to happen in in 2040 or whenever it is that there's a, a majority minority uh, country that that is going to that that's that's going to be detrimental to the American experiment and that, that they need to take meaningful action whether that's building the wall whether that is expelling people who are undocumented in the country right now um, whether that's you know, Create new immigration restrictions or, or whatever it is. Right? I think, and Trumpism speaks to that. Um, you know, and the violence is is I worry only going to get worse. Right? I think we're we're having you know I think the, the 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 patterns that we're seeing starting with Charlottesville um, in in twenty seventeen, you know, through to what happened uh, in Buffalo? I, I, I'm worried that that this kind of discussion about about uh, you know what kinds of steps, if the government isn't taking steps, is, is you know do people who, who espouse this replacement theory uh, or believe that that you know the country is in jeopardy, what steps are they going to take? Um, and it's gonna it's I'm worried it's gonna get uglier. What 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 do you what do you think is I mean, do you see the violence and the, the, the political rhetoric, or, or how connected do you think those two things are? I think some people employ the political rhetoric to justify their violence. I mean, the, 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 the shooter in Buffalo is a case mm. in point. It's a kind of real paradox there in that he targeted a, a, a supermarket in a predominantly African-American neighborhood because, of course, the black population in the United States 
is mainly descended. It goes back to the very founding mm. and the earliest earliest establishment of, of the colonies that became the United States. And so to some extent, they've been here as long as, as most of the white people. But that's uh, um, uh, expecting historical nuance. Mm. A sophisticated grasp of history from such an individual is probably too much to ask. I think violence is a huge problem. I think guns are a huge problem. I think that I do not, I want to make clear, I'm not downplaying the significance of the violence. I think the violence is, is, is a huge problem plaguing American society and the, the fact that politics in the United States seems to be becoming violent is a real worry. I, I agree with you completely on that. I'm less convinced, and, and I don't want to be proved <laughs> incorrect about this. I don't want this this connection to be established. I think this rhetoric has always been with the country. There's always been a tension between a country that welcomes immigrants and a country that depends on immigration and this xenophobic strand of thinking and people trying to pull up the drawbridge after them or pull up the, the, the ladder after them. So so I and I we should we should be wary about kind of and I know you're not doing mm. this, kind of having a roseate view of the past, thinking yeah. it was always great. So I am worried about the violence. I, but the, the violence is the thing we need to address. I'm not sure we're going to be able to... I, I think it'll be all right in the sense that, you know what, I, I think all those concerns that were expressed in the 1890s, through, from the 1890s to the 1920s were unfounded. Yeah. And I believe that to be true. I think in a century's time, the United States will be more diverse it will still be the United States. Oh, to be sure, right. The, well, 100% will be there. But Excuse me. <laughs> I mean, I think one thing, though, going back and looking at the history of it, 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 it is, there are, as we point out, lots of antecedents for this rhetoric. But it's not constant. It comes in That's waves. That's a good point. That's a good point. And, and there are particular moments in which this happens, and those particular moments tend to have a, a corresponding rise in violence against minority populations. So if you look at you know the Madison Grant era, huge amount of violence aimed at non-white people, non-Anglo-Saxon right. people. If you look in the 1850s, same thing. If you look in the, you know, late 19th century, also the same. You know, so 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 that the The fact that it has antecedents doesn't mean it's a necessary precondition that American, American, the United States is always like this. It comes in waves, and I think we're in a, a, a particular wave of it where it is a prominent, you know, the fact that so many Americans buy into some version of the Great Replacement, that's really troubling. And um, given, you know, if you've got 20% people believe in Great Replacement and you've got... 45% of the United States that that is non-white well then 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 that's you know gonna lead to some some bad outcomes um, so the question then is I think what could we what can the United States do for those people who you know don't buy into this racist nonsense what can we do to combat it what what steps can be taken to to delegitimize the great replacement as being you know um, a valid political point of view. I think that's a really good point about the the, the patterns here, and and I don't want to suggest, and I, and I want to make clear, I'm not sort of buying into some sort of Whiggish 
Pollyanna, oh, it's all going to be okay in the long run view. Um, I think we have to call it out. I mean, that's yeah. the purpose of this episode, I think, to some extent, to provide context for it. I, I think, it, you know, I think it was, I think people like Tucker Carlson and Elise Stefanik need to be called out mm. on this. We're not going to get the people on, you know, the dark web who are, who are, who are sharing much more explicitly racist um, content about this kind of stuff. What we need to do is police them and try to prevent them from committing acts of violence. So I think we need to do something about that. Yeah, that's true. But I think in terms of trying to call out this rhetoric and, and not mm. allow it to become legitimate is really, really important. I think that when you ask what the kind of majority yeah. needs to do, I think it's or the kind of sensible middle need to do, it's that. Mm. Um, and so I think you try to police violence as you always police violence, and, and uh, I think that needs to continue. And I think, because again, the violent manifestation of this is a serious problem. I'm, I'm making no mm. um, apologies for that. Uh, but I think we need to we need to make clear why this rhetoric, why this rhetorical turn is problematic. Oh, to be sure. Um, you know, I think one of the things that, that that's fascinating about this, fascinating in a morose sense, uh, of this modern iteration is how much of this is also wound up with conspiratorial thinking and you know Q related stuff you know the the earlier version of this the Horatio Storer version the Madison Grant version I think they were mostly just thinking about demographics and what immigration uh, and demographic shifts were going to mean and they were to be sure super racist about how they were thinking about it but this modern version you know that suggests that it's actually sort of elite whites maybe elite white Jews who are manipulating things I think that's the the weird contemporary angle to this and it definitely ties in with um you know other political threads about the deep state and other kinds that's of right and, and i think that that is a weird dimension to this and it is distinct i mean so so madison grant is contemporaneous roughly with the publication of the ur text of modern anti-semitism the protocols of the elders of zion but he's not drawing on that to explain what's happening. He's just saying, hey, this is what's happening. Right. You know, it's terrible. Uh, and I think you're right. I think the marriage of those two things is unique to this particular moment. But I actually think that's an advantage uh, to, to those who want to call this out. Because calling out nonsensical conspiracies, okay, people who believe in conspiracies are going to believe in conspiracies. Mm. But, I, I, you know, to say to... I don't know. Uh, to, to call out the... the, the, the people who are making this rhetoric acceptable to the mainstream to say, well, do you realize the people who are saying this are also saying that? Is that do, do you agree that, that, you know, whether it's QAnon or pedophilia and all that kind yeah. of thing? And some of them do agree with that. We know that. But um, I, I think in, in calling calling nonsense to this, I think emphasizing that in particular, it might be might be an advantage. Yeah. I mean, I think... You know, I, I cited the, the AP poll from earlier this month. It's 20, 20% of Americans believe some version of the Great Replacement. I think within that 20%, because polling questions are inherently you know, problematic mm -hmm. about the way they frame these things, includes people who are simply concerned about the demographic shifts with all with on one end and then people on the other end who are Q conspirators and, and white supremacists. Well, what was the question, though? 
uh, I don't. I think the question was, do you believe that that there will be? That, that, yeah, actually, I should go back and look. But uh, but because I, the question matters. Yeah, question. So so I think you and I believe in this demographic change and that that it will happen by the middle of the twenty first century, right? Mm. And that's not to say we're subscribing to the either the anxiety about it or the conspiracies around it. I mean, yeah. it, it, one can it's an observable fact, fact yeah. that, that the the demography of the United States is changing. And to my way of thinking, again, that's fine, and there's nothing we can or should do about it. I think that's just history. Yeah. Uh, but but does that put me in the twenty percent? Yeah, I don't I don't think so. I think I think that the question was phrased in a more particular way. But I remember, you know, um, this was twenty years ago, when the Census Department came out with one of these projections about when this majority minority moment would happen. Um, and I was teaching high school at the time. I remember sort of mentioning in it in class, saying, hey, the census came out and they said some interesting things. And this is one of the things they said. And, and I thought that was a demographically interesting phenomenon. And some of the students, like, freaked out. I remember them thinking, like, oh, that's going to, that's bad. We need to stop that from happening. I'm like, okay, let's disentangle what you're saying here. Because, uh, but I, I think there, there is something about that that makes some Americans panic. One of, one of the things that interests me about this is, um, and I know we have to wrap up, I'm not sure the racial categories help us in all this, mm. uh, because we know race is a construct, right? Yes. <laughs> and um, if there's one demographic that's growing really rapidly in the United States, it's people of mixed or multiple races, depending on how they identify themselves. And, and um, you know, I, I think there'll be more and more of those as the years go on, people who, who are descended from... from uh, multiple heritages, and I think that's I think that's a great thing. Um, and and I don't think we factor in that kind of you know the language around this. And I, I it's understandable from the people mm. who subscribe to the conspiracies is very prescriptive and rigid in, in terms of racial categories, as though these are absolute. And we know that's not true. Um, and so that's another reason why, again, big picture, I'm, I've got uh, greater cause for optimism. Right. Let's uh, wrap it up with, with, some, with some, some lighter things, Frank, because this has been a heavy, deep episode. It has. It has. Yeah. So, so, David, I want you to go first because there's a connection from my – I think there's a line okay. from yours to mine. All so right. So, what's your last drop, David? All right. Well, so there was a story in the news this week about the removal of the last public phone booths in New York City. David, I saw that. Yeah. It was, there was in Times Square. There were like two phones, I think, and they took them out. And, and I just think that's an interesting sort of – Obviously, most people haven't used a public phone in, in at least a decade. Um, but I think that's an interesting sort of technological shift that, that's worth noting, the, the, the disappearance of, of public telephone booths uh, from uh, in New York City. Because, um, I mean, I grew up obviously using public telephones all the time, and I'm sure you did too, and many of our listeners probably did as well, but that seems like it's now a uh, an artifact for the museum and, and no longer... Uh, so when did you last use a public telephone, David? Oh, jeez. That's a really good question. That's probably been 20 years, uh, I, I would guess. I don't know. I'm going to have to think about that. When was the last time you used a public telephone? I think I last used a public telephone during the Icelandic volcano ash cloud. Do you remember that? About 10 <laughs> yes, years ago? Yes. And I was stuck in Newark Airport with a 
fading phone. There was some reason I couldn't use my phone. Possibly I didn't have ro- I didn't have roaming on my phone or something yeah. at that point. And anyway, I I I remember trying to get the change together to make a call. Uh, on, on a public phone, phone in Newark Airport during the Icelandic. Uh, that's the last time I can remember okay. using a okay. payphone. The interesting thing about that is um, your observation, and I saw the story. I saw the same story you did about the, the removal. I saw them taking it out with a fork. Yeah. Um, but wow, if you think about film and television and novels, and I read a lot of detective fiction in particular. Um, how many plots turn on either getting access to a phone or not having access to a phone? Um, and, of course, that's all changed. And you watch old movies now, you're like, oh, well, they had a cell phone. That and, probably goes exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, so it's just interesting. That, now, I, I think people will remember what phones are, but, you know, the expression to drop a dime on somebody, right? Yeah. I mean, that's going to be one of those things where we'll still be using it, I'm guessing, 50 years from now. But the origins of it will be, you know, our successors in this podcast will say, hey, my last drop is I want to explain what drop a dime means. And that phone call hasn't cost a dime, I'm guessing, in decades. Yeah. Um, but, but uh, uh, yeah, the, the passing of the phone booth is, is interesting. And, of course, they're mostly, they're all gone. All, not all gone here, but mostly gone here in the UK, I'm trying to think. I mean, certainly the red phone boxes That's are gone. But the and Well, there's a few. Occasionally you see them, but they're yeah. derelict and... and uh, they're more for tourists sometimes than they are for, for actual usage. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But, um, uh, yeah, interesting. So I, I, too, want to talk about a passing technology, because I want to wish a happy 200th birthday to the Union Canal, which is outside our window right now, David. Um, you can salute it as we, as we speak. Okay, yes, good. the Union Canal runs from Falkirk to Edinburgh, or Edinburgh to Falkirk, depending on which direction you're going in. And then, if those of you who are familiar with Scottish geography and, and uh, will know that there's a, there's a lock, there's the Falkirk wheel. Have you done the wheel? I have. Yeah, and the wheel is fun. Yeah, and the, the wheel connects it to the um, canal that goes to Glasgow. And so, so the Union Canal was completed in 1822 and just last weekend they there were there were celebrations here along the canal a flotilla I'm sorry a I missed couple it. of couple of boats canal boats uh, went and 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 was launched from here at Lochran Basin and then there was a muster point down in Harrison Park if you know Edinburgh geography and then uh, a fleet of canal boats went to to 31 miles to the west to Falkirk to, to mark the 200th anniversary of the of the Union Canal. And the Union Canal is very interesting in all kinds of ways. It, it carried coal to Edinburgh and a lot of fuel. To, for, it's, Edinburgh was called Old Reeky because it was so smoky because of all the coal dust everywhere. And so a lot of that coal came on the Union Canal. But the interesting thing, the reason I say this about uh, the connection between the last phone booth and the Union Canal is... The Union Canal was completed in 1822, and of course the railroad came very soon after that. Mm. And so the vast canal network here in the UK, which is very impressive and is really, really important to the industrial history of the UK, was superseded very soon thereafter by the railroad. This new technology mm. came along, and, and the railroad um, basically killed off the canals. When I moved here back in 1997, the Union Canal was derelict. It was restored around the millennium. Was restored uh, in 2001, and that's when the Falkirk wheel was was launched um, or created. And and you know, but when we got here, the Union Canal was a pretty grim place, and now it's great. It's been thoroughly restored. 
people use it to, for all kinds of recreational purposes and so on. So this technology was, if only the phone booths could have been repurposed for recreational purposes. Well, who knows, where is Superman going to change now? <laughs> exactly, know? exactly. So, so anyway, happy the, birthday yeah. to the Union Canal. Happy birthday, Union Canal. Yeah. Right. Cheers, Cheers David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.